This is first and foremost fun. It wouldn't be half as much fun were it not for the boisterous dinner table vibe that drives the film. That's Mark Carmody of The Observer of UK. He's talking about Blue Beetle, which is our new movie this week. Our old movie this week. Got a couple for you. I watched Oscar Farhadi's The Salesman again. It won the Academy Award for Best Foreign Film back in 2016. I hadn't seen it since the movie first came out. Uh, fans of Cinephile will recall he's one of my favorite filmmakers. We had him on the podcast, me and Cody, maybe last year or the year before. Uh, and he was awesome so i want to go watch it again it was tremendous as always so hopefully you can all go check it out it's available on amazon prime and i also rewatched i tanya which i hadn't seen in a long time and that was on hbo that movie came out the year after the salesman 2017 so our old movies this week aren't exactly old old ancient old but like they're relatively old and the reason i wanted to watch i tanya again is i figured hey a little bonus gift for all the fans out there in the midst of an actor strike right now you can't have any actors talking about movies it's uh obviously against the rules but i said you know this is the Cinephile 3.0. We talked to Margot Robbie, me and Dan Stanzik way back, you know, six years ago. So this this Levitardian audience probably has not heard that interview. So we're going to re-ear that Margot Robbie interview from six years ago, uh, which I think is, makes sense, right? I'm, the, there's been no late night talk shows, Cody, in months. All they're doing is just re-airing old shows. So why not re-airing a classic old interview, considering the fact this is the summer of Margot Robbie. Barbie's going to make a billion dollars. So if you haven't heard it, you're going to hear it this week. Or we could lie to the audience and make it seem like it's a new interview. And we talked to her about Barbie. <laughs> I don't know. We could, we could have to get like a Margot Robbie impersonator and we can figure that out. Or we could do it like it's a new interview. We just didn't ask her about Barbie. Like yeah, for, some, exactly. for some inexplicable reason, it feels like a time capsule from 20. 17. I didn't discuss just at, any the, at the very beginning. You come in and you're like, I know everyone's talking to you about Barbie. Right. So we're just going to talk to you about this movie. Correct. And then it's like, oh, <laughs> I just talked to I, Tanya and Wolf of Wall Street. Like, wow. <laughs> Interesting decision by Adnan. Only focus on those two movies, even though it's a brand new interview. Yeah. Zagging when everybody zigs. Exactly. Um, it's great to have Dan Levitard back. I was listening to the Levitard show this morning. Stugatz, when he gave me that 30 minute conversation last week, which was too long. I mean, I love the guy, but it was just, I still can't believe he called me. And it was that long just for Miles Teller's phone number. But in the midst of the conversation, we were joking about, you know, I said, you and your you've really figured it out. I said, you barely work. You're there for NFL season, which is when it's, it's your moneymaker. So I totally get what you're doing. And then you're going to see dead shows. You're supporting your daughter as a family man myself. I love the fact you're, you know, you're seeing Rachel at Northwestern lacrosse. I go like, I'm, I'm all in on what you're doing. Like you, you figured it out. And he said, yeah, you know, Dan's always giving me grief. He's like, you, you figured it out more than me. I'm like, yeah, like I'm, I'm working seven months of the year and the rest of the time I'm just screwing off and I'm, I'm traveling, I'm doing whatever. And he was like, Dan's big concern is he goes, if I, if I'm off, then we lose the audience. And Stu guys, cause that's not true. He said, if we're off, you might lose some of the audience. That is true. But when we're back, they're back as well. And I got to be honest with you, with no disrespect to the previous guest hosts, I didn't listen a lot the last couple of weeks, aside from my segments as well with David Sampson. But today I checked. I think I actually Juju posted the other day. Dan tweeted, hey, I'm back with uh, whatever insult he gave Stugatz. And I was like, all right, I'm back. So I think Stugatz has figured it out. When the guest host is in, and I know this, by the way, as a longtime guest host of Mike and Mike, I never took it personally. People were like, oh, go look and green off. I'm not going to listen. I'm like, no, I totally get it. If Colbert's off, you're listening to Colbert. Colbert's not there. I understand. But the guest host still has a tough job. Still has a decent job. Izzy, I thought, did a good job. But when the guest hosts are gone and the big kahunas come back, the audience always returns. Yes or no? I think so. Uh, I like to think our audience is a little different. Uh, I, I, I didn't even, and we didn't really dip the last few weeks in See, the charts and stuff. So I think we have a, I think you are right in general, right. but I do think our audience is kind of sticky that we, I think most of them stick around for the guest co-host and then just complain about it the entire time. That's true. And what's also, I think, helpful is the fact the shipping container remains. Like there's some DNA in the show. Like if you guys were off, let's say you, Billy, Roy, Stugatz, Dan, and I'm like, oh my God, like this, with all respect to, you know, Lucy and 
whoever else, <laughs> Tony. I'm like, okay, that's it's not quite the same show. Yeah, and we rotate. Like, remember, we talked about like Billy was in that chair a couple right. times. So we actually let our people host a little bit. Yeah, I've got to listen to your dad, though. Apparently, he was talking about his hamstring injury. I haven't listened to that episode yet, but I will I will get to that today. Hopefully, Greg Cody's in the men. Did you mention to your father at all? By the way, I, I still need his thoughts on George Jones. I'm not sure if he's going to watch George and Tammy at some point. I texted you that, I, that he did see it, and he gave you the classic Cody review of it was good. Okay. So he he likes it. Greg, Greg Cody's in on it. Claire, by the way, texted me a picture of the Pedal Tavern. So we have even more proof of the fact this is just an obnoxious situation right now taking over Nashville. All right. So we got our, we got our Greg Cody review George and Tammy. Happy to hear it. Uh, I often complain about money, uh, which I think people are generally amused by. Like, I'm like, you know, I go to the theater and it cost me X amount of dollars for the cotton candy, et cetera. So here's the good news. It was National Cinema Day this past Sunday. I'm not sure if you're aware of that in Florida, but 3,000 theaters were experiencing this. So I got an email about it from Fandango, and I'm like, well, it's probably not going to hit my area. You know, New York, New Jersey is a pretty expensive area. I'm not sure they're not going to get anything cheap, but sure enough. And then my buddy Mark Simon also messaged me. He goes, hey, not sure you're aware. National Cinema. I'm like, I'm aware. $4 tickets for everything. So I go to my local theater here in Ridgewood, five minutes away. Just want to double check. I'm like, hey, you guys are doing the $4 promotion? He's like, yep. I'm like, wow. I'm like, well, you only have four movies playing. And the AMC, which is 15 minutes away in Paramus, that's where I saw Oppenheimer. They have lots more options, but I just pictured the image of like just an insane amount of people, teenagers, loud. I go, no, no, everyone's going to take advantage of this promotion. I'll go to my local theater, support local. I've already seen Barbie and Oppenheimer, obviously. The other option is Gran Turismo, which looks like one of these very generic car racing movies. The great David Harbour is in it. My wife currently re-watching Stranger Things with one of my kids. So I do like David Harbour, although I never watch Stranger Things. I just like to pop it. Oh, I like David Harbour. That guy's great. Uh, he plays the coach in the movie, which looks like one of these you know, generic sports movies. But I said, well, you know, sports, sports podcast or Blue Beetle. So I give a poll to the kids. I go, what do you guys want? So they go, Blue Beetle, of course, kids, superhero movie. I'm like, all right. So I'm going in with very low expectations. But for three kids and me, $16. Like, that, that's unfathomable. I go, it's usually one ticket. Right. Even if, the, even if this movie blows, I'm like, well, there's going to be something redeeming in the fact I just took three. Like, my kids are going to enjoy it. At least two of the three, three kids are going to enjoy it. I might think it sucks. 16 bucks is a win. Now, the popcorn, of course, large popcorn. Thank, sadly, no $4 discount on the, on, the, on the popcorn. $9, but you get the free refill. $7 slushy. Okay, $24.50 for snacks. 16 bucks for the tickets. That's where the people want the discount. You can have normal costs for the movie ticket. Give me the discount on the popcorn and the drink. Correct. I believe most theaters still have, uh, you know, Tuesday discount prices, at least matinee prices you can get. So I'm with you. If you go, I'm paying eight bucks for a movie. You go, all right, fine. I mean, that's great. $12.50 is a normal price. Sure. I probably pay with 12 50, 13, but it's it's the popcorn, the slushies where they gouge it. Regardless, though, 40 bucks to see Blue Beetle. Now I'm going in there with low expectations, and I was pleasantly surprised. One might say overwhelmed by the experience, especially at that price. It just shows you in life. Listen, you get a good price, you're gonna be entertained. Here's the story. That's the Dan method of life. Lower expectations Correct. and you're good. Jerry Madelon, who was uh, a longtime senior producer at ESPN, and we still keep in touch. He's, he's unbelievable. He always sees the anti-Cody. He always remembers my birthday. And, and to his credit, he'll send like a video message. Like, it's incredible. The great Bill Pito, who works at MSG, who made a cameo once in the podcast. Cody didn't know who he was. Then Google him. goes, oh, I know who he is. I'm like old school ESPN, 15 years. Pito pops in once in a while, MLB NHL Network. Pito sends me, he goes, do, 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 do you get messages from Jerry Madeline? I go, he always remembers my birthday. And he sends a video message. He goes, me too. He goes, he's like in his office. And he sends like a, an elaborate 30-second video message. I go, it's amazing. I go, he must Google like my, my family, my kids' names. It's amazing. He's like, eh. Anyways, Madeline once gave one of the great bits of advice ever. He said in life, it's all about, because I would go in his office complaining about something. He was always in charge of the talent, right? So I'd say, how come Weissman's getting all the 1 a.m. sports centers and I'm you know stuck doing ESPN News? So he'd say, listen, I mean, it's all about frustration versus aspiration. 
Like, okay, because this is the rule of life. I'm like, all right. He goes, the more frustrated you are, you have to lower your aspiration. So your aspiration is to be Neil Everett. I'm like, yeah. He goes, you want to be Carl Ravitch? I'm like, bingo. He goes, the aspiration is too high. That's what's leading to your frustration. Aspiration has to be, I just want to work at ESPN. I just want to be on television. Now you're no longer frustrated. I guess you're telling me just, just, to, just to lower expectations. That, that's the key to life. Because yeah, if your aspiration is to get out of bed, to be healthy, to be a good father, whatever they may be, to have an income, to get paid to talk about baseball, then you'll never be disappointed. I said, okay, I, I, I like it in theory. Here's my issue with it. I go, basically, you're saying I should rob myself of ambition. Like if everybody subscribed to your theory, they just wouldn't be ambitious to go, well, I got out of, date. I got out of bed today. I smoked some weed, went to my job. It's fine. He goes, no, I'm not telling you. I'm not telling you. I go, no, that's exactly what you're saying. Lower the aspiration, decrease frustration. He goes, listen, it's all within merit. But back to our point, chew on that, by the way, frustration versus aspiration. Blue Beetle. I'm going and I go, what the hell is this movie about? My kid's like, no, no, trust me. It's, it do, I, go, I know it's a superhero. I've seen more superheroes than any man alive. And I'm tired of me because no, trust me, this is a good one. I go, he's a beetle? He's like, yeah. I'm like, okay, great. Here we go. So here's a story. An alien scarab. I don't even know if I'm pronouncing that correctly. S-C-A-R-A-B. Scarab? I, they say it in the movie. I just can't remember how they said it. Chooses Jaime Reyes. One of the better jokes, by the way, he's Mexican. They keep calling him Jamie because actually it's Jaime, which made me think of longtime pitcher Jaime Navarro. Used to always call him Jamie Navarro. I go, no, it's Jaime Navarro. Anyways, Jaime Reyes to be its symbiotic host, bestowing the recent college graduate with a suit of armor that's capable of extraordinary powers, forever changing his destiny as he becomes a superhero known as Blue Beetle. It's directed by Angel Manuel Soto and written by Gareth Dunn Alcosar. My One of my kids was just telling me, he goes, hey, the lead actor, I don't know how to pronounce his name. He's also in uh, Karate Kid. I'm like, okay, interesting. He goes, it has like an X and he's right. I'm looking at his name right now. I'm going to guess it's pronounced Zolo. Mato Duena, and he's excellent as Jaime. Very winning personality, charming. I was reading also my man Ty Burr the other day. He was talking about it as a film critic when people criticize him for spoilers. General rule of thumb, he said, as a film critic. The first third of the movie is the setup to the movie. He goes, I think there's nothing wrong with disclosing what that is in the printed review. The middle third is open to interpretation. That's upon the critic and what he feels the audience wants to know. And the final third is unacceptable. You can't give anything away in the final third of the movie. That makes a lot of sense. Yeah. I never heard that before. I go, that's pretty good. So I'm going to use the first third of the movie. So the movie starts out, Mexican family, which, and I kept thinking, okay, what, what's the hook here? That is actually something really cool. It's the first Latin superhero, at least to my knowledge, seen in a major venue, which I was reading in the Hollywood Reporter is kind of frustrating because of this actor strike. None of them could promote the movie. Now, let's be honest. I don't think a lot of people know who Damien Alcazar is. Perhaps he's big in Latin America, but you wouldn't know who George Lopez is. So if George Lopez was on the red carpet right now, if he's on Colbert, Fallon, et cetera, it would have helped the movie. And I think the overall box office is a little bit underwhelming. And yet the numbers are undeniable. I believe the Latino population in, in America is at least 20%, if not approaching 25. And the amount of Latin representation in movies is around 9%. So at the very least, Blue Beetle was refreshing because I'm seeing a demographic of people who I'm normally not seeing in this light. If I see a Latin family, it's like Lin-Manuel Miranda. By the way, at the U.S. Open last night, got a huge ovation. Was there in attendance, but it's like a Lin Manuel Miranda, you know, in the Heights, something like that. You go, okay, fine. It's 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 clearly a Latin movie, but this is a superhero movie about a Mexican family, and it ends up inhabiting this guy. So cool, wrinkle, fresh, different, and of course, my man George Lopez. So I'm telling my kids, I go, no, no this guy's like, he's huge. I go in the Mexican community, you're kidding? George Lopez, the guy has his own show. The fact he's in the movie already, I'm getting this some pedigree. But basically, Becky G is Hajida. This is the voice of the character, but Bruna Marquezina, hello. She's playing Jenny Cord. Now, the Cord family is the ones who's like the evil empire. 
And Susan Sarandon shows up. I go, wow, I haven't seen Susan Sarandon in a while. We've been running Bull Durham quite a bit here on the network. So I'm like, oh, Susan Sarandon. I'm still looking for it. She's got to be in her 60s now. She plays Victoria Cord. She is ostensibly the enemy. She's running Cord Enterprises, negative, nasty corporation. You've seen this before. Okay. Jenny, in the midst of this chaos, takes this package, gives it to this kid, Zolo, who just lost his job. Jaime, I should say, his real name. And she gives him this package. He goes, just take this package. Just don't open it. Okay, fine. He goes home to his family. They're like, what is it? He's like, I got this from Jenny Cord. Jenny Cord's very rich, famous, the Cord family. Yeah, open it. I can't open it. Okay. Open it. Just once. Don't be a whatever. Okay, fine. He opens it. It's just like a metal kind of tin. The one girl kind of takes it, plays it. What is this? Like, they're laughing, you know, making jokes, whatever. He grabs it. Boom. The thing sucks on his face. Like, oh my God, my God, I got it off his face. You get this great physical comedy of the thing, like literally overtaking his face. And then it goes, and I'm not kidding, up his ass. And George Lopez, of course, gets a line. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. He starts screaming in Spanish. What's happening? <laughs> and now he's transformed into the Blue Beetle. And I'm like, wow. Okay. Well, I, I really know what kind of superhero this is. And it's hilarious. He flies to the roof. He does not know how to take advantage of his superhero capabilities. He literally has no idea what's happening. So he like goes through a car. There's a bus coming. He's like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. And you hear a voice, which is Kajita saying, you know, operating now or, you know, uh, strength, strength being enacted. So it's like, you know, it's telling him what to do. He's like, oh, okay, whatever. He literally breaks a bus in half. You know, he punches something, the thing explodes. So you have a superhero who has no idea he's a superhero. That's essentially Blue Beetle early on. He ends up seeing Jenny. He's like, what the hell? You told me this package. You weren't supposed to open it. What the-? And she was like, I don't know. My dad made it. He said it was like some sort of thing that could alter the universe. He's like, yeah, no shit. Look at this thing in my back. He's got this like, giant <laughs> blue. He's like, I'm, I'm turning into an android now. Become the Blue Beetle. So from there, of course, you got Susan Sarandon's evil villainess who's going to try to track him down. You got his own family trying to figure out what he's supposed to do. He wants to get back to being normal. He wants this thing extracted out of his back, and yet he is the Blue Beetle. From there, I won't say anything further, except because I think that's the Tiber method. There's the first third. But I uh, I thought it was entertaining. I thought it was fun. Let the final third get a little excessive. I mean, there's you know, you've seen one action sequence, you've seen another. But because it was different and refreshing and fun, I'm actually enjoying the Blue Beetle. And let's not forget, for 16 bucks for four people... Let's give him that three maple leaves. Go check out Blue Beetle currently in theaters. All right. Antoine Fuqua is a terrific director. Training Day, Equalizer 1, Equalizer 2, Magnificent 7. Fifth time collaborating with Denzel Washington. I got the pleasure of going to see Equalizer 3. Let me tell you the story on that. This was last week. Sunday, took a couple of my kids to the Yankees game. Driving back. When's the last time this happened to you, Cody? Car starts overheating. Ooh, I don't know if that's ever happened. Knock on wood, I've never dad. had that. I've never had that. Yeah, I think it happened to my dad as a kid. I remember it. I'm like, I just see coolant defective sensor. And I'm like, mm, okay. We start driving. And then like, it starts smoking. Oh, dad, dad. Yeah, you start seeing smoke from the hood. I go, okay, this is an issue. This is a problem. I'm in the Bronx, for God's sake. I'm like, oh my God, let's just please get across the George Washington Bridge. Had to pull over at one point. Now there's more smoke coming. I'm like, I mean, paralyzed. I'm like, okay, I just have to get home somehow. I'm probably running away from my car. If, if, I, if I see smoke, I'm thinking there's going to be some explosion. Because I don't know anything about cars, so I would just pull off to the side and like get away from it. Because I'm thinking it's going to explode. Quick Google search in the midst of traffic. You are correct. It says if your car starts smoking, you're supposed to pull over 10, 50 minutes, turn that sucker off, wait, get to your destination as soon as I can. But this is 10 minutes into an hour drive to Yankee Stadium. So I'm like, oh my god, we, I, I can't pull over. I'm on the bridge, and I can't be that guy. My car pulls over. I'm like, oh my god, this could be a disaster. So when we get to Yankee Stadium. Park the car. We start going. The game. The guy follows me parking. There. He goes, "Do you know your car smoking?" I'm like, "I do. I'm. I'm. I'm gonna." Hopefully it's a long game, three hours. I'm going to turn it off and then get home and, and I'll, I'll take care of it tomorrow. He's like, all right, just letting you know. We start driving on the way home. Within five minutes, I'm like, sensor, nope, defective, car overheating. I'm like, oh my God. Somehow we got home. 
Thank God. And uh, well, actually, we didn't even go all the way home. Sorry. I got across to Washington Bridge. We got into Jersey. Now the smoke is getting too much. I go, that's it. And I pulled over. I'm like, that's it. I called AAA. I'm like, you got to get this to the shop. I left a message with my mechanic. I'm like, sorry, you're going to see my car there. Took an Uber home. At that point, it was like 20 bucks. It was a win. So what happens the next morning is I've got this screening for the Equalizer 3. We're supposed to go see the movie uh, last week, which was the 21st. Our man Nick has set it up through Sony. Normally, they send me the movie via screener, like an email. But they said, we, we can't do that, but we can set up a theater. Where do you live? You're in New Jersey? Okay, we, we can find a theater. So they set up a screening for me at 9 a.m. So the only problem is the car's in the shop. My a family car, my wife needs. I go, for no just problem. you? This screener? Yeah. Yeah, this is shocking to me. This has never happened to me. I've been a film critic how many years now? Six years? I don't even know. So I take an Uber. 30 bucks, $10 tip. I show up. This is maybe 20 minutes from my house. I've never been to this theater. I think it's Woodridge, New Jersey. Like 20 minutes away, whatever. So I get there. I'm not looking at that last time I saw a movie at 9 a.m. Probably like the Toronto Film Festival or Sundance. You know, who watches the movie at 9 a.m.? So I'm kind of opening the door. Guys, like, Mr. Burke, I'm like, yep. He's like, hi, I'm Walter with Sony. I'm like, excellent. He's at Equalizer 3. I'm like, can't wait. So I go in and your thought too. I'm like, there must be some other people. I'm like, it's just me. Maybe there's one dude, but I'm like, I don't think, I think he just works here. I think he's like, kind of waved to me. I'm like, he wasn't dressed like in, as an usher, but he wasn't still looking like a film critic either. Were the snacks like, like, offered to you? No, I was kind of hoping that. I was like, this is really like, they'll be like, hey, water, bottled water, sir, chilled water, uh, some salmon, perhaps. I'm like, no, I'm fine. Uh, no snacks, sadly, though. But in a movie by myself, I got to watch The Equalizer 3, which is fantastic. I really enjoyed it. Denzel, action movie, fun, entertaining. And then I walked out. Walter goes, what do you think? I go, fantastic. I said, I'm interviewing Antoine Fuqua today at 2.40. I can't wait. I'm so glad. Thank you for sending this up. And he goes, yeah. And I said something like, hey, you know, I think it's Denzel's best performance yet, like in the franchise. Is it cool? I come home. We're supposed to record it last week. Unfortunately, I get a message. I signed in. They go, hey, Antoine's running a little bit late. Can you do 4 o'clock Eastern? I go, oh, I'm going to be at work at that time. They go, we'll reschedule for next week, which is when we're recording right now, which is the 29th. I go, great. We'll do it next week. God willing, again, that you're going to hear this entire interview. It's actually going to happen. So they messaged me after. Go, hey, Walter said you uh, you like the movie. I'm like, yeah, fantastic. Can't wait. They said, can we use this blurb like in the, in the press notes? And the blurb says... <laughs> Denzel's best performance yet in the franchise. Dash Adnan Burke's in a file. I go, oh my God. I go, I, I, I don't know who's going to see this. I go, I, I saw TV the, the other day. I'm like praying. I'm like, is that? No, not me. So I don't know where that blurb is going to be, but hopefully somebody sees my blurb. That's my dream right now. I want to be on a movie poster blurb. You said when you said it the first time that you kind of just farted it out. You didn't really even mean it that much. You were kind of just like, yeah, hey, right. out. It was, so do you actually believe it? <laughs> I do. I do. But I mean, if he had said to me, we have a blurb that you'd like to use, what would you like to say? I'm like, oh my God, well, you're going to give me a minute here. I want to something really spectacular. I just kind of said a casual, like, oh, it doesn't sound fantastic. Best performance yet, the friend said. He's like, can we use that? I'm like, oh my God, yeah. The only time to my knowledge, and I still have to check with this, Ben Lyons produced a movie called Spaceman. He was executive producer with Josh Demel. And Josh, the story of, uh, for all the baseball fans, they know Bill Lee, the crazy pitcher for the Boston Red Sox. And at that time, I gave Ben like a rave review, obviously. This is 2016, 2017. And the review was something like, because he goes, I need a blurb. I'm like, yeah. My blurb was something like, you know, baseball meets the Coen brothers, a modern day Big Lebowski in the story of Bill Lee, the, the spaceman, blah, blah, blah. And he's like, awesome. It's great blurb. I'm like, yeah. And I think he said it was on the poster. Now, to this day, I was like, Ben, I, I want that poster. I need to put it in my room and you'll see the blurb for me. Like, I'd name Burks in a file. Like, that's the dream. So he's like, yeah, no, I still, I still have some digging around, but I don't know if he actually does. <laughs> I, I, I'm not going to say he lied. I don't think he would lie, but maybe he only made. Li Imagine Chris Cody makes an independent movie. You're like, dude, we're making ten posters. We have a hundred. We're going to do ten <laughs> posters. We're going to put it up. I promise you'll be in the blurb, but you're not. But I have to check with Ben. He says I, he may still have some in storage. But regardless, hopefully my blurb for Equalizer Three makes it. And at the very least, enjoy this interview with the director.
The Equalizer 3 is in theaters this Friday. I encourage you all to check it out. It's been a wonderful franchise. And for that credit, we can give it to Denzel Washington and the director, Anton Fuqua, whose credits include, of course, Training Day, The Magnificent Seven, and this Equalizer trilogy. He's also got an upcoming biopic, I believe, on Michael Jackson. So he's obviously a very busy man right now. Antoine, first and foremost, congrats on Equalizer 3. Another terrific movie. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of fun to make. Yeah, how how much fun was it shooting in Italy? That was my first thought. I said, God, I would have put my hand up and said, can I go shoot over in Sicily? I mean, aside from the fact it's a beautiful locale, I imagine the food is great, but I read you used a lot of local people as far as the tech crew. You used a lot of Italians as far as the making of the film. Is that correct? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, we used a lot of local people. Um, I mean, obviously, we brought in the great Bob Richardson, DP, and um, Naomi Shohan, production designer, but, but most of it is all an Italian crew. And even the extras in the town are yeah. from that town. I'm glad you mentioned Bob Richardson, legendary cinematographer. I think first time shooting Denzel or first time working with you? No, we worked together on Emancipation. Did you guys work together before? I mean, he may have been the first time working with Denzel, which I think is what I read in the notes. So it's Bob's first time working with Denzel. Yeah, correct. Yeah. yeah. And he said that was one of the allures of working in a movie like that. I mean, a cinematographer like that, who, listen, you think of his work with Scorsese, you think of the JFK, the, the great 90s movies he did with Oliver Stone. What was your collaboration like with him? Such a legendary DP. Incredible, man. It's like secondhand. It's weird. You know, me and Denzel have a secondhand relationship and we're in sync all the time. And Bob is very similar. You know, like naturally, we just started having a rhythm. We talk all night. We neither one of us sleep. So that works <laughs> like mad men, you know, so it's incredible, man. Bob is magic and he's a he's a he's a uh, treasure. He's a treasure. One of the things I love best with the movie, Antoine, is that the first half an hour, like you get some action out of the gate and I know the climax is going to be great, which it was. But I love the character development. Like some of the favorite parts of the movie to me was that first 30 minutes. You know, Denzel's kind of letting the, the character unfold, the story unfold, going to get his tea, very meticulously unfolding the napkin, talking to the locals, buying a hat. Like I, I love those rhythms of the movie. And I just wanted to, to credit you for that. How important is that within an action movie where, again, you know you're going to get the action. But I thought that character building was really important to the story. Yeah, it is. I mean, we started off that way with the first one. Real, It's a slow burn, you know, as it sort of unfolds. And McCall's very methodical that way. So the pacing of the story is very much like McCall's pacing. It unfolds in front of you. It's like I, I use the analogy of a stick of dynamite. You're just watching the wick burn. You know it's going to blow. And it's, <laughs> it's coming, man. <laughs> You're right. Slow burn works well, especially when Denzel gets after these bad guys. Listen, mm -hmm. I love mob movies. I love The Godfather. I love Goodfellas and that. But I really appreciate with your film is you say, listen, Camorra, the mafia, Cosa Nostra is not what you think it is. You know, yes, it can be romanticized and glorified in movies. But if you live in Italy, if you live in Sicily, you see how nasty these guys taking advantage of just average workers. Where did that plot point come from? Hey, what's the villain going to be? Hey, how about the mafia? We talked a lot about it, you know, when we did Equalizer, I believe the end of Equalizer 1, we started discussing where we could film it again. And uh, Richard Wank went and did some research and came back about uh, the writer of the script about uh, the Camorra. And immediately, you know, I dug into that, man. And, you know, the, and everyone said to me, yeah, they're like the barbarians of the mafia. <laughs> they're, they're wild. They're young. They're on motorcycles. You know, they're, they're wild. So that's where that came from. Yeah, and you capture the element really well in the story. Let's talk a little further about Denzel. You know, he's, I think, in his career, averse to sequels. And yet with you, it's like, no, let's do it. And in fact, fifth collaboration with you, I believe that ties the late Tony Scott with five. Mm. How meaningful is that to you? This is arguably one of the best actors. I mean, he is one of the best actors the last 30 years, one of the great actors of all time. And he says, no, Antoine, I love working with you for the fifth time. What does that mean to you? Oh, it's incredible, man. You know, the... the the idea that he trusts me that much and has that much confidence in me is, um, you know, it's priceless. 
I don't take it for granted. I don't think about it until you bring it up to me that, oh, yeah, this is the fifth movie together. Because, you know, it feels like we when we did Training Day, the rhythm, it never stopped. So as soon as we start again, it's like we're just back on that same rhythm, you know. So but it's an honor. That's all I can tell you. It's a complete honor. I've learned a lot from Denzel. I read one of the stories, production notes. You told the story about giving him a note. And he said, OK, what did I do last time? Meaning he's so in the character, he isn't even aware of like what choice he made previously. If you can span on that a little bit. Yeah, he's Denzel's in the moment. He's I mean, that's what he does, right? He becomes that character. And so sometimes he's in it. And so I may ask for a particular thing again, but I have to remind him of what that was because he's not living in that moment anymore. That moment's gone. So one of the things with Denzel's is you got to capture the moment when it happens because it's, it's a good chance you're not getting that again because he's already each moment's fresh for him. You know, he doesn't go back to the same thing. Right. Because each moment is different in real life. And that's really how he is. Every actor, as great as they might be, you know, listen, we have good days, we have bad days. There's a full funny story from the book of Eli where the Hughes brothers tell a story about Denzel getting to the set. Everyone keeps reminding him the time to be there. And eventually he's like, you know, 38, like, you know, I've done 38 movies. I know what I'm doing. Was there ever a time like Denzel was just maybe a little frustrated and you were like, hey, listen, I know how to talk to Denzel. I, I can calm him down here. I mean, it happens. You know what I mean? It happens. You know, it's like normally for Denzel, it's one of those things if someone's not prepared, you know, he comes and he's ready. Like our relationship is I get to the set. I get it ready. We discuss. We may block and rehearse here and there if that's what's necessary. But by the time I tell my AD, OK, let's get Denzel, like everyone should be ready to go pull the trigger. Yeah. If he comes to the set and for some reason, somebody's not on their game and they're just not ready. And it's, that's not a good thing. <laughs> Makes you think of Michael Jordan, right? Hey, when I got the ball in my hands, we better be ready to play. Otherwise, That's exactly what he reminds me of. I tell him all the time. He reminds me of Michael Jordan or Ali. Like, he, you got to be ready. Yeah. If you're not ready, we're going to have a problem. Uh, once again, the Equalizer 3. It's fantastic in theaters this Friday. Dakota Fanning. I was so happy to see her in the movie. I, I saw this story. I go, hey, re reunion went on fire, which you didn't direct. But of course, everyone knows they worked together back then. How did that casting idea come about to reunite Denzel and Dakota? Todd Black called me, the producer, one day. You know, it's out of the blue. He goes, hey, Dakota Fanning, you're a fan of hers? I said, absolutely. He goes, she's interested. I said, well, I need to have lunch with her today, like this afternoon. And we did, and I loved her. And then I called Denzel. I said, Dakota Fanning is interested. And he goes, get her. Great. And it was just amazing to watch their relationship just pick right up from, from where it left off, you know? And Denzel would look at me sometime and laugh about it, you know, because... <laughs> She's a grown woman now, you know, <laughs> and it's just like, it's surreal, you know, but it's, it's, it was an amazing relationship. All right, let's get into the action. You know, I, I think it must be so hard and you were a gifted action director, but there's so many good action movies. Now it's been a good year for action movies overall. John Wick 4, you know, Mission Impossible. And then you see like these elaborate set pieces now in action movies. It makes me think about, I think it was Equalizer 2. You have Denzel and Pedro Pascal fighting in a hurricane. Like how wild was that to even think of this construction? Like, all right, well, let's pull this out. How can they fight in a hurricane? <laughs> Yeah, there's a lot of conversations about that one. You know, I want them in a hurricane, you know. And so Richard Wank, the writer, would go off and write it and come back. And it's like, okay, now we got to actually do it. You know, and how do you do that with the wind? And how do you keep everybody's eyes, all this stuff, you know. We just do it, man. I mean, once I know Denzel's in, we, we find a way. You know, it's like if he's in, it's complicated, like, like all action movies, keeping people safe. But, you know, we find a way. And how about Pedro? He's really blown up since that movie. I mean, he already was a good actor, but now with Last of Us, that, that dude's everywhere. He's gone, man. I see him everywhere, man. He's fantastic, by the way. I love Pedro. Funniest guy ever. He has, I didn't realize how funny he was. 
every day, man. This guy was cracking jokes. I told him he should do some stand up. I think he would kill it. <laughs> That's always funny with actors like that. They do these dramatic roles. Go, no, dude, he's a ride. He's a gas. Dude, completely different guy, man. He's hilarious. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, I want to talk about some of the other movies of your career. Obviously, I'm a fan of your work. You mentioned Training Day. It was such an important movie, you know, in Denzel's career. I'm sure in your career, it wins an Academy Award. What I've always wondered is that great speech at the end, like where the, the gang members are turning at him. He says, you know, King Kong ain't got nothing on me. You know, like Denzel's Scarface moment. Tell me about that moment, that line, that scene. Is that an ad lib? Is that in the script? It was so uh, wonderfully rendered by Denzel. No, it's all him. You know, I mean, we were in the moment. We're in a situation. We were surrounded by real gang members. And I mean, I was all very real as far as the people and the environment in the jungle, you know, and he was just in a zone and I could see it. something was coming like an explosive and he just boom and he did it. And I remember he came over to me afterwards. He goes, I hope you got that. I was like, yeah, yeah I got it. You know, he goes, because I don't know where that came from. But here's the thing. When I get into the editing bay, I'm looking at it because it's anamorphic, right? And it's like a fine line between focus and out of focus. And my focus puller came up to me and he literally, he was doing this. His hand was shaking. And so I get to the editing bay and I was like, that performance is a slight buzz on him. And my editor, Comrade Buff, I love Comrade. Comrade said to me, I'll bet you a million dollars no one ever mentions it. Never mentioned it. <laughs> that's the only take I got. That's it. That's amazing to think. You used to get a scene like that. I'm like, that's going to be take 10, take 12. And you're telling me one take. You guys nailed it. Yeah. One take. Yeah. Oh, it's amazing. Um, Ethan Hawke's one of my favorite actors. I love seeing him in that movie. I'm happy. You know, Denzel won the Oscar. Ethan Hawke got a lot of acclaim as well. He's not a supporting actor. You need, you know, Batman and Robin kind of going toe to toe. It's like a tennis match, right? One guy's hitting the other guy's falling back and forth. Tell me about Ethan and working with him in that movie. Ethan's incredible. Like there, there's no Academy Award without Ethan. I don't think, you know, Ethan, Ethan is the right actor who I fought for. I really wanted him in the movie. I, I love Ethan Hawke. He's intense in a subtle way, in a different way. And believe me, Denzel was giving it to him every day. I mean, they were going at it, man. I don't think I ever sat at my monitor. I used to sit in an Apple box and just watch them go at it. And I would forget to yell cut sometimes because I was just so into it. And and Ethan would come up to me sometimes going, who am I talking to today, Alonzo or Denzel? I was, I'm pretty sure it's Alonzo. So just roll with that, you know. <laughs> but you need a great actor. He's a theater actor, like Denzel's a theater actor as well. You need actors like that to really go go at it for it to work, because it's all about them in that car in that small space. So you need another great actor to balance that. And so Ethan Hawke is that. Yeah, and to your point, you hear some of those people discrediting method acting. I'm not sure if they were like in their characters all the time, but to your point, you can't be going out for beers after it's having card games, right? You have to maintain a level of that animosity, which is true to the movie. Absolutely. Yeah, you, ha you have to. You know what I mean? It's just, you, it's hard to turn that off and on. You know, you don't just, Denzel and Ethan, they become those characters long before they come to the set. They're already developed who they are and their body languages changes. Everything changes. That's what I love so much about actors. It's, it's, it's something really special to see someone embody the skin of another character, really become that thing. You know, so as a director, that's what I love the most is to watch them do that. I think uh, it's a gift. I'm with you. Equalizer 3, once again, in theaters this Friday. I encourage everyone to check it out. We're talking with Antoine Fuqua, the director. Let's go back to the replacement killers. Chalion Fat, I mean, John Woo, right? Had to be an influence there. Of course, he was longtime. Um, Chalion Fat was his leading man. You think of the killer and hard-boiled. Were, were oh, you yeah. making a movie in some ways an homage to John Woo with kind of like a, a fresh Antoine Fuqua slant on it? 
Yeah, I mean, it kind of happens naturally because of Child Young Fat, you know, because of the nature of the script and the action that was it was called for. There was certainly that happening um, naturally. John Wu was a producer on, executive producer on, and things like that. He didn't have anything to do with the action scenes. It was all designed by myself and my uh, my um, stunt coordinators. But it was influenced by what Child Young Fat has done with John Wu, you know. Hmm. But great, great relationship. Love Child Young Fat. Coolest guy in the world, man. Yeah, Just, favorite John Woo movie is it, I'm gonna guess it's one of the killer or hard boiled. Uh, the killer, yeah, 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 yeah. It's my favorite, man. It's pretty amazing the action sequences, the duality of that role. It's it's really amazing to think about. I also, and I was going back over your filmography. I forget you made that Ali biopic for HBO, which was fantastic. I mean, huh. Ali's one of those guys. I mean, I watched the Ken Burns documentary. Obviously, I've seen When We Were Kings. I've read the Hauser book. Like, I'm, I'm a huge fan, as many of us are. But I'm curious for somebody like you who really gets in deep to the material. What's something about Ali that you discovered through that process? I mean, that was incredible for me. I got an Emmy for that one, a sports Emmy on that. Yeah, so I'm really excited about that one. Well, you know, I, I always knew Ali was a fighter, obviously. And I'm not talking about just in the ring, out of the ring. Um, I didn't realize everything he went through just because he changed his name. Um, I think one of the things that, that, that came out of it was Ali said, courage only matters when everything is on the line. And he felt like everything was on the line, yeah. right? And, you know, by not going to Vietnam, by sticking to his beliefs, I didn't realize how strong he was. Yeah, it's amazing to think about because obviously Islamophobia still exists today. There's still race baiting today. Issues of race are very important in America. But you're right. Just to think about that one line, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Like what a what a what an eloquent way, plain way of making an issue. Like I'm not going to go to Vietnam because I ain't, I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. Yeah, and he stood on that. And you, you know, you have to respect a man for doing that. You know, um, that's why I called the movie "What's My Name." <laughs> you know, because that's what it was all about, right? You're standing up for what he felt was right. And uh, I think we need more of that. So I, I, Ali is my hero. Without question, you can't get a better hero than Muhammad Ali. Uh, hopefully this strike gets over soon, man. We can get back to work. But I did read the other day, Michael Jackson biopic you're working on right now. What can you tell me about that? Yeah, not much right now because the strike kind of stopped everything. It's kind of down the line, you know, so we'll, we'll see how it all shakes out. All right. So hopefully at some I'm point I'm excited you about it, though. It is something I'm excited about. Believe yeah, me. I mean, at the very least, I believe you have the, the consent of the Jackson family or at least some collaboration. So at least you can you can get things rolling at some point. So, um, dude, you talk about a major <laughs> Michael Jackson. That's about as big a swing as it gets. So I, I can't wait to see that. Lastly, I just want to say with regards to Equalizer 3, what are the odds we see an Equalizer 4? I mean, this has been <laughs> this has been a very successful franchise, Antoine. Never say never. <laughs> never say never. But if I was a betting man, I wouldn't bet on that. <laughs> <laughs> well, you've definitely given a lot uh, of yourself to the franchise. And like I said, it's very entertaining. And I think it's coming out at a good time as well. Like I love these late summer, early fall releases, right? You get from the summer movies, blockbusters, and then you get these critically acclaimed Oscar movies. Equalizer 3, to me, fits in the middle. Like To me, it's right. like it's a really smart, well-crafted action movie. And I love the fact it's nice and lean and mean. Like, how important is that? But the editing-wise, I think it's like an hour 43. Like, you're not trying to pummel somebody with a two-hour, 40-minute movie. It's smart, it's character development, but you get the action. How important is that for you? Extremely important. I mean, that's the, you know, that's the... That's the that's where you make the movie, right? You get into the editing bay and you really sit there and you sort of have to be the audience and you got to, you know, you can't test the patience and you have to also respect the intelligence, you know, when when not to say something and when to say something, you know. Um, so that's really important. And it's also um, pacing and timing is extremely important to, to give the audience what they want. Well, no one wants to sit in a the theater for three or four hours. They have other things to do with their lives. 
<laughs> that's true but i'm thrilled when i go to the movie theater and turn my phone off i have an excuse i'm like listen i can get away from everybody turn my phone off i can go see a great movie like equalizer three i encourage everyone to check it out i don't want to spoil anything but my last compliment to you is this sometimes these stories you think are going a certain direction and there's a waitress early on her and denzel you think maybe something's happening i just want to say i love the way you handled that i'm not going to say anything else but that was really well crafted by you sometimes in these movies things go in a certain direction like, you know what that was tasteful it was smart it was great stuff from Antoine Fuqua. Equalizer 3 in theaters this Friday. Everyone check it out. Once again, check out his other work as well. Training Day, Magnificent 7, the other equalizers. And what's my name? Muhammad Ali on HBO. This was a real pleasure, Antoine. I appreciate it. Thank you. Pleasure's mine. Speak to you soon, buddy. All right, a couple old movies here. Thanks once again, Antoine Fuqua. He was awesome. I, Tanya, Chris, have you seen this movie? I'm going to say no. No. But you're aware of Tanya Harding, so it will be yes. fine. The story's competitive ice skater Tanya Harding rises amongst the ranks of the U.S. Figure Skating Championships, but her future in the activity is thrown into doubt when her ex-husband intervenes. So what's great about I, Tanya, and again, I hadn't seen it in six years, so it felt like watching it again, is... It's, it's almost like a mockumentary, like it's first person. Tanya Harding is looking at the camera, Margot Robbie, telling her story. Then you also have other characters telling their story, including her mom, Lavana. Allison, like, listen, this is a really important movie in Margot Robbie's career. You're going to hear the interview, by the way, I did with her. But she does Wolf of Wall Street, which announced her arrival. I mean, balls to the wall movie, fully naked. She's with Leo. She's with Marty. Amazing. Okay, great. Now what do you got? I, Tanya, she co-produced it. She stars in it. Like, this was her first starring role. So it was very important, I think, in her career. Now, as we talk about Barbie, that she could prove she had star power, she could carry a movie, which she certainly does. But in many ways, if you watch I, Tanya, the one who walks with the movie is Allison Janney. Allison Janney won an Academy Award, Best Supporting Actor, playing her mother, and she's hysterical as Lavana. Take no prisoners, hard-charging mom, smacks her around, abusive. Like, clearly not the kind of mom we should be rewarding but very entertaining in the scale of I, Tanya. You know, she's the type to say, if you didn't yell at Tanya and tell her what to do, then she wouldn't do well. Like she needed criticism. She's like one of those moms who says, no, no, I'm tough on my kid, but I know what I'm doing. She also has a bird on her shoulder, which you have to watch them to understand why exactly Lavana has a bird on her shoulder. But great cast. Jeff Galuli. If you remember the whole Tanya Harding story, Jeff Galuli, her husband, amazing name. They had that scheme to take out Nancy Kerrigan. Um, and Paul Walter Hauser, who, you know, I loved in Blackbird. Hey, uh, ever seen a girl naked before when she's like 17? <laughs> that Paul Walter Hauser, his first movie where he announced himself was he's played Sean, one of the uh, the crooks in, in the story. And of course, one of the actors I love, Bobby Cannavale, he's hysterical playing Martin Maddox. So like the first twenty minutes of the movie, you have all of them literally looking at the camera, telling their stories. Okay, Tony did this and this did this. And Margaret Robbie does a fantastic job with all the figure skating. Again, I'm sure you'll hear in the interview, I don't, think, I don't believe she's a figure skater coming from Australia, but was able to nail it as well as possible. But a really irreverent tone in the movie, and it's funny and goofy, and yet at the same time makes its points very savagely about how difficult and competitive figure skating can be and what Tanya Harding was up against. But it's definitely, I think, really should be credited for telling the story in a unique manner. And especially in 2017, it really cut through. I mean, I remember putting it in my top 10 list of my top 10 movies of that year because of the fact the way the story was told, even though I felt I knew the story of Tanya Harding and this, you know, in my head, hey, white trash woman who took out Nancy Kerrigan, what else was there to the story? 
I think that Itania does a really good job of it. Once again, it's on HBO. You can check it out. Don't know what else the director has done, Craig Gillespie and the writer Stephen Rogers, but they deserve credit for telling a unique story. And again, an excellent cast start to finish. A couple blurbs for you. Itania, Robbie and Janie are flawless in a compelling and corrective account of a misunderstood figure. One of the more darkly funny biopics you'll ever see. That's Helen O'Hara of Empire Magazine. Hannah Strong of Little White Lies. Gillespie's flippant biopic leans too heavily into lightness. Not only does it remain oddly silent on Kerrigan, but it feels flippant about domestic abuse. Fair point. And when Le Ma, the movie is a wildly entertaining, if imperfect, telling of the unlikely champion from the wrong side of the tracks and the violent 1994 incident that would go on to define her life. Once again, Itanya available on HBO. And we're going to play the Margot Robbie interview in just a second. One more for you. Oscar Farhadi is a salesman, one of my favorite filmmakers. He's a two-time Academy Award winner. He won his first ask, uh, Oscar for A Separation. His second one was for The Salesman, which I remember watching in New Haven. You couldn't really get a lot of these movies uh, around the ESPN campus of Bristol, Connecticut. I lived in West Hartford, so it was a good like 45-minute drive to go watch it. I couldn't wait to see it. I remember loving it in the theater. And now watching it six years later, it's one of those movies, or seven years later, it's one of those movies It's better when you're in a movie theater, obviously, because you're immersed in it. Now at home, I, I didn't find it as captivating, but I, I do think it's an excellent movie, and he is a brilliant, brilliant filmmaker. Here's the story. While Rana and Imad, a married couple, are participating in a production of Death of a Salesman, she is assaulted in their new home, which leaves him determined to find the perpetrator over his wife's traumatized objections. Again, as if you've heard the interview with Farhadi, which I did here on Cinephile, you know, he's so good at telling these stories like an onion. You know, you pull back one layer, you wheel back another layer. He's, he's an incredible dramatist or dramatist, depending on your pronunciation. And uh, this one is, is no exception. And I just think it's so carefully calibrated. Again, back to my ailing car, which is still in the shop. His movies are like a finely tuned vehicle. I mean, he knows exactly where he's going with all the gears, all the different elements of it. And the first hour, I think, kind of takes his time in developing the story. But the final 30 minutes of The Salesman is as good as it gets, whether it's a foreign film or English language film, you know, get over the fact you have to read some subtitles. It's a brilliant movie, and I highly recommend it. Again, I, Tanya, I'll give it three and a half Maple Leafs. I'll give Oscar Farhadi's The Salesman four Maple Leafs, in particular, the final devastating 30 minutes. It's amazing work from one of the world's great filmmakers. And again, I raved about A Hero, which is my best picture from a couple of years ago, so you know how much I love his work. If you haven't seen The Salesman, check it out right now on Amazon Prime. You can watch it there. A few blurbs for you. Peter Bradshaw of Guardian, The Salesman shows Farhadi's ideas are in danger of becoming mannerisms, though it is a potent, disquieting piece of work. Nigel Andrews, the ending is brave and interesting. Before that, the subtleties of relationship breakdown are finely charted. But elsewhere, there's too much gauche alternation between symbolic parallelisms. Get out of here with your gauche. And Sandra Hall of Sydney Morning Herald, feel good is a word unlikely ever to find its way into Farhadi's vocabulary. That's funny. His movies are dark. But he does know a lot about truth and consequences and how to apply them to the anatomy of a marriage. Once again, check out The Salesman, available on Amazon Prime. All right, that's our recap. Blue Beetle, I'm giving it three beliefs. That's our new movie in theaters. Check out The Equalizer 3 from director Antoine Fuqua, starring Denzel Washington in theaters this Friday. Oscar Farhadi's The Salesman on Amazon Prime, and I, Tanya, currently available on HBO and on Max. As we leave you, a little bonus wild card. Here is Margot Robbie in her own words. And joining us now on Cinephile is Margot Robbie. Margot, thanks so much for coming on Cinephile today. 
Thank you for having me. You know, it's amazing. As a sportscaster, I remember the, the story vividly with what happened with Tanya Harding. And you're the last person I would expect to play that role. And the, the best compliment I can pay you when I'm watching it, because I think of Tanya Harding, and as the movie points out, they think of her as short or dumpy, or she's not as beautiful or pretty in, in the images of Nancy Kerrigan. And you yourself, of course, very tall, beautiful actress, Australian. I wouldn't expect you to play Tanya Harding. What was it like for you? Did you have any of those reservations, knowing that people like me may have these uh, misperceptions about Tanya Harding and someone like yourself playing her? No, I mean, it, I mean, first and foremost, Tanya, I think, was very unfairly spoken about in the looks department. She's an athlete. She was never meant to be a model. And I think what she did uh, kind of got left on the wayside in, in, in light of the whole incident. But she was a tremendous athlete. I guess I was most worried about convincing audience members that I could also seem like an Olympic-level athlete. Um, I, I did months and months of training, of course, but even if I had 10 years to train, I, I could never skate like an Olympic-level athlete. So um, that was my biggest fear uh, on the physical side. Uh, the rest of it, like with any character, I, it's you have amazing people to work with, amazing people who can do crazy things with hair and makeup and costumes. And the idea was more to embody the spirit of Tonya. That's what was important to the fact that we handmade all the costumes the way her costumes were handmade all the makeup that our makeup designer used she bought really cheap at a strip mall nothing was you know designer makeup it had to be something that Tonya could have physically bought herself in the 80s the hair the 80s perm was amazing and great fun and we adjusted the hairline with the wig so that you know my face shape changed slightly so there's a lot of tricks you can do like that and a lot of it did help me feel more like the character and definitely embody the spirit of Tonya and also the 80s the 90s a different time period no question it's a very physical role you know I'm Canadian. Canadians, by nature, I think, like figure skating, and I covered it for a couple of weeks at one tournament in particular, so I remember watching it, and I'm, I'm probably one of the few that can actually discern the difference between a sal cow and a triple axle and a triple lutz, but that, that, that whole world, Margot, is a different world, isn't it? People don't appreciate how tough and how physical and challenging that is, and I'm sure you got a taste of that in your research. Totally. I mean, it's such a hard sport, and I, I think I even underestimated how difficult it would be when I started training. I said, okay, I'll, I'll need like a couple months, sure, but I'll pick it up quite quickly. And I mean, it's such a hard sport. It's really painful. I mean, I played ice hockey a little bit when I first came to America, and this was way more painful than that because you've got no padding on. You've got the toe pick there to trip you up. Um, but but falling on the ice with no padding, it's brutal. And, and the, the sheer raw power and strength it takes to pull off these moves is unbelievable. I mean, what, what, these, what these athletes do is incredible. And that's why it was so important to us to film these skating sequences on the ice. I mean, a lot of the time when you see it in, on TV and competitions and things, it's, you know, through a long lens or a static shot from a camera on the side of the rink. And in that way, it's seen as being very graceful and, and it's a real art to make it look so effortless. But when you're on the ice, um, like a few feet away from a razor sharp blade flying towards camera, I mean, you really, it's exhilarating to watch and you understand the raw power and, and, and how tough this sport is. I understand you talked to Tonya Harding before the filming started. How'd that conversation go? 
It was great. She was incredibly understanding about what we set out to do. I mean, I didn't want to meet her until right before we started shooting because I wanted to have prepped my character and decided exactly how I was going to play the character before meeting her. I, she wasn't a consultant on set. She didn't get a say in the script um, or anything like that. So all things considered, she was very understanding that we were setting off to make a movie. And obviously seeing it must have been a, a weird experience for her to, to see the most triumphant and tragic moments of your life, uh, you know, whittled down to two hours on a screen, told in someone else's hands. I, it must be incredibly difficult, but she was always very understanding. She she understood that she needed to let go and let us do our thing. We told her this isn't a traditional biopic. It's not a documentary. It's a feature film. And I just wanted to let her know I'm playing a character. I'm not trying to replicate you. Um, we, we need the liberty on set to, to kind of let these characters grow in their own way as we're filming and we can't sugarcoat anything which we didn't so uh you know when she eventually saw it once we finished um right before we premiered at toronto she said she laughed and she cried and there's obviously moments she doesn't agree with primarily the moments that's told from jeff galuli's point of view in our film um who's played by sebastian stan so uh yeah but she, she overall, I, I think, I think she's grateful that her side of the story was finally told. Talking with Margot Robbie right now on Cinephile on GoldDerby.com, Margot. I've got you getting nominated for Best Actress and Allison Janney for Best Supporting Actress. Your scenes together are the heart of the movie, and you mentioned the fact that it's brutal at times. I, I would be laughing because it was such droll, uh, dry, deadpan. But like, you're, Janney's like the mother from hell. But yeah. Then, but then like, I'm laughing because she's just so uh, blunt and and so ruthless. But then I'm yeah. jolted, right, because the physical abuse is awful to see. It's startling mm-hmm. that, that, between you two. But what were those scenes like? Because I thought both of you knocked it out of the park. Yeah, Allison describes it well. Allison, Allison says doing her characters like laughing in church, where you can't help but laugh, but then you feel bad about it um, straight afterwards. There's a lot of those moments in our film where you find yourself laughing, but moments later you're kind of hit with the reality of the situation. It is really confronting, and suddenly the room goes dead silent. You can hear a pin drop. Um, it, it's amazing what Craig, our director, did to manage to pull off a tone so specific, one that dances between the drama and the comedy. And uh, It's a very entertaining film the violent moments are not entertaining they are confronting we didn't want to sugarcoat that and make it seem like something you know an issue as serious as this is by any means easy for someone to deal with so those moments yeah it's it's quite confronting i think for for an audience to watch Uh, but then you know moments later you find yourself laughing at something else entirely and uh it's just a wild ride this film it really it's hard to give it a specific genre it does encompasses encompasses the richness of Tonya's life. There's tragedy, there's hilarity, there's absurdity, there's harsh realism. I think people will be very surprised when they walk out of the theater. And I have to ask you the story of Wolf of Wall Street, which, again, you were so great in that film. When you first auditioned for Scorsese, Ellen Lewis gave you the call, said, Marty is interested. You're like, who's Marty? And then tell the story about what happened with you and DiCaprio, if you don't mind. Yes, I didn't know that everyone referred to Marty as Marty and not Martin Scorsese, so that took me a minute. Um, and then I quickly gathered that Leo was Leonardo DiCaprio. Here I was, using everyone's full name up until that point. Um, but it was it was a crazy, crazy experience. I mean, I, I jumped off a plane and um, was suddenly in New York City in Ellen Lewis's office, and she took one look at what I was wearing and was like, 
why are you wearing that? And I was like, I didn't, I didn't know this was going to happen. I didn't pack accordingly. I had jeans and like <laughs> flat shoes on. She was like, please try and look a bit like the character. You're going to go to Soho, get the tightest dress and the highest heels, and then you're going to come back and do this audition. I was like, got it. <laughs> so I came back and, um, and yeah, uh, to be in the room with Ellen Lewis, Martin Scorsese and Leonardo DiCaprio all at once was incredibly overwhelming. But uh, yes, I guess, I guess my nerves bled into my performance a little bit and maybe I got a little overzealous with a particular scene and um, I I smacked Leo in the face which was not scripted at all and I had a moment of terror where I thought I was going to be arrested for assault and instead they gave me the role so it turned out well in the end (laughs) Yeah, Who was laughing harder after you slapped him? Leo or Scorsese? I don't know, they were tackling they thought it was hilarious they were like do that again let's do the scene again and hit him again (laughs) (laughs) How about the fact that Wolf of Wall Street the way Terrence Winter wrote the script, the Duchess is referred to as the most beautiful girl in the world. No pressure, right? Yeah, hottest blonde ever, I think, was the was the quote. Uh, yeah, I was... Yeah, every, everyone talks about, like, oh, when you transform for a role, I was like, I can't look like this. This is, like, impossible. But really, it's it, it really is about just embodying the character and the attitude of the character. You can if you, you can do anything if you say it with conviction. Yeah, and I know that obviously you've acted in soaps before, but what was it like being directed by Scorsese on set, as you said, not being overwhelmed by the moment, working with Leo and all those other great actors? I just never presumed anyone would take notice of my role, so I kind of just went for it and did whatever um, felt right in the moment. I, no one knew who I was at the time. No one was expecting me to do anything particularly amazing so i thought oh why not why not really go for it when am i ever going to get an opportunity like this for i don't know if i'll ever even get to be in another movie after this so uh yeah scorsese like craig and i Tonya, kind of creates one of those atmospheres on set where there's no boundaries it's it's your character and you do whatever your character would do in this moment and if that means doing something really crazy or doing something exceptionally subtle that that's your choice to make and um I, I love working with directors who, who don't give you boundaries like that. They, they create a safe space, and then they let you go wild. It's right. amazing. Now, those scenes with uh, you and Leo, I mean, uh, you could tell what kind of relationship the Duchess had with Jordan, and, and it, she wasn't going to take any crap, no matter what. Yeah. And that was the best thing about your character. Yeah. I, just, I just read David Ayer was saying about Suicide Squad, he said he regrets the fact he should have made the Joker the main villain in the movie. I know that movie got mixed reviews, Margot, but everybody was unanimous that you were the best part of the film, that you were outstanding as Harley Quinn. And again, I think it's because I just picture that character. I picture you, that big smile on her face. Like, this is somebody who relishes her homicidal tendencies. What was yeah. that? But it seems like a fun character to play. Correct me if I'm wrong. What was it like for you? Oh, she's so much fun to play. I love, love playing Harley. Um, I kind of never wanted it to end. But yeah, I, I, I again, another brilliant director to work with. And I, and I love that David never... He never directed me differently to any of the guys on set. He never, if, if he was pushing them to a really dark or uncomfortable place, he'd be giving me the exact same piece of direction. I never, he never sugarcoated anything just because I was a girl on the set. Um, you know, these characters are wild, and he, he kind of let them go wild. But I loved playing Harley. Um, she's definitely got a lot of attitude as well. I think a lot of the characters I play have, <laughs> have a lot of attitude. But that's why it's so fun. You get to do and say all this stuff that you can't do in real life. It's yeah. the best of the job. I was about to say, the, that's, that's the joy of acting, is you get to immerse yourself in something that you would never be a part of, which exactly. is this ragtag group. 
Margot Robbie, the star of I, Tanya. I encourage everyone to go check out this film. I think you nailed it when you pointed out the fact that it's very serious subject matter. And I, and I watch, I have such sympathy for Tanya Harding. I had no idea what she went through, the amount of abuse. Uh, but I don't want people to hear that and go, oh, I don't want to see a serious movie because it's so funny. So I don't know yeah. how you pulled it off. But seriously, it's a very entertaining movie. So congrats to you. And thanks so much for the time. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Can't believe you didn't ask her about Barbie. It's <laughs> wild, man. Billion dollars, biggest movie of the box. I was like, you know what? Everyone else is going to do that, right? When they're zigging Cody, we are zagging. And that is what makes us unique. Uh, coming up next week in the podcast, my buddy Scott Spinelli. He's really funny. We're going to talk with Edward Burns and his movies, plus Albert Brooks. He's a big Albert Brooks guy. Only Murders in the Building. I remember Billy Gill's a pretty big fan on that show. Season three is now available. I'm through four episodes of that. So we're going to do that next week in the podcast. And again, go back and listen to previous episodes. Thanks to all those who enjoyed the interview with Edon Ravine as Winning Time continues on HBO Max. As Cinephile continues as well. Until then, I'll see you at the movies.